Last week, we talked about discovering God's vision for your life, your family, for our church. And how embracing that vision means sometimes making changes. It means having to sacrifice some things and step out in faith. But we also said that the key to discovering God's vision in the first place is prayer. Remember, Peter was up on the roof praying when he received the vision of the sheet and the animals that led him to go to Cornelius and to introduce the gospel to the Gentiles. Prayer really is a recurring theme throughout Acts. The Holy Spirit came when the disciples were in the upper room praying. The early church was devoted to prayer. Peter and John healed a man on the way to the temple where they could pray. They were going there for the hour of prayer. Their prayer in Acts 4, as we just heard David read, literally shook the room filled them with the Spirit and gave them boldness to proclaim the Word of God. The first deacons were selected and set apart with prayer. And as we said, that vision came to Peter last week when he was on the roof praying. Is it just me or might there be something to this whole prayer thing? I think it's kind of important. In fact, prayer is vital to God accomplishing His will, His mission through His people. Prayer is vital. A Christian that doesn't pray, a church that doesn't pray, is kind of like a lamp that isn't plugged into the wall. It has no power, and it cannot shine its light. And everyone in the room will just have to sit in the dark. Prayer is so important for us. In Acts chapter 12, we discover the power of a praying church. Peter, you see, has been arrested, and he's awaiting trial and execution. And because the church is earnestly praying for his release, God sends an angel to deliver Peter out of prison. And so as we look at this amazing story this morning, I want us to use Peter's own words in his very first epistle, his first letter. And actually, it's not Peter's words. Peter is quoting from Psalm 34 when he writes this. But I just imagine years later after these events, Peter, as he's writing this epistle, recalling to his memory, both that psalm and his experience that night. So we're going to use these couple of verses from 1 Peter as sort of a framework as we look at Acts chapter 12. And here's what 1 Peter 3.12 says. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So the first part of this story we see demonstrates that God sees our trials. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Read with me, if you will, in Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 4. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. As so often happens throughout history, an evil and powerful man is opposing God and working to destroy God's people and thwart God's mission. We see this happen time and time again throughout the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. We see it throughout church history and world history. We see it happening around the world today, don't we? It's a recurring 
cycle. I imagine the church this particular night praying again those words from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one. Could this not be prayed today? Herod is raging and plotting against the church and and it was all politically motivated. See, the Jewish people hated Herod Agrippa, and he was the grandson of Herod the Great. And the problem is that the Herods weren't Jewish. They weren't even of Jewish descent, and and yet Caesar had imposed their rule on the Jewish people, so the Jewish people resented the Herods. They hated them. And and you know the history of, of Palestine, especially in this day and age. There's always upheavals. There's always somebody stirring up trouble. And so Rome is kind of always breathing down the back of the neck of Pontius Pilate, And Pontius Pilate then breathes down the back of the neck of Herod Agrippa. So it's likely that Herod hoped to earn favor with the Jewish religious leaders and with the Jewish elites. He wanted to prove that he was one of them, that he was devoted to their traditions and their religion. And as the church is welcoming more and more Gentiles into it, he probably saw it as an opportunity to kind of come up alongside those nationalistic zealots, those Jews who really wanted to be just pure Jews. They hated the Greeks, they hated the Romans, so he is really trying to pit them against the church as well. We read that he's already scored political points by executing James, the first apostle that was martyred, was James, the brother of John. And so he's probably thinking, boy, that that worked real good to my favor. Imagine how my poll numbers will go up when I kill Peter the leader of this whole Christian movement. That's kind of what's going on here behind the scenes. And Peter is facing insurmountable odds. He's got 16 guards assigned to him, four guards each taking a shift, two of them guarding the door, two of them are literally chained to him at all times. See, Herod knew that Peter had escaped jail before. He'd had a jailbreak once before, and and Herod wasn't going to take any risks So he was doing everything he could to make sure that Peter wasn't going anywhere. Insurmountable odds. What was Peter going to do? I'm sure you've probably found yourself in a seemingly hopeless situation before. Like Peter, maybe you, today, feel like you're facing insurmountable odds. It seems like there's always more month at the end of the money. Can I get an amen? That ever happened to any of you? Maybe you feel overwhelmed by work or by school. And you just don't see how you can get it all done in time. God, if you just give me a few more hours a day. What's wrong with 26 hours a day, right? I mean, come on. Can't we just use a few more hours? Or maybe the doctors tell you that there's just nothing else they can do. You know, God's Word promises that no matter what your situation, you do not face it alone. God sees your trials. He knows your affliction. He hears your cries. He's not a distant God who can't bother himself with the details of your lives. On the contrary, he is very near. He knows the number of the hairs on your head. He has numbered your days. Through the incarnation of Christ, God himself has entered into your suffering. He has borne your pain, your doubts and even your sins. Rest assured, God sees your trials. The second part of the story, the second part of the good news, is that God also hears your prayers. 
Read with me here in verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Now, I just want to stop there and, and wonder something. I wonder why God rescued Peter from prison, but not James. Why did God rescue Peter and James was executed? Did the church not earnestly pray for James to be set free from prison? I imagine that they probably did. So why is it that James... I mean, was James not just as dedicated to Jesus as Peter? Was James just not as important to the church as Peter? No, we really don't know why God answers some prayers and not others. What we do know is that God does see our trials. And God does hear our prayers. We know that God does care for us and love us. And we know that God's will is sovereign. Our New Testament reading today was the church's prayer after Peter and John had first been arrested and tried and threatened by the Sanhedrin and then sort of just this first time just sort of slapped on the wrist and let go. And they prayed. The, the, the NIV says that their prayer started, Oh, sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. They submitted to God's sovereign will, whatever that might be. Do you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? The three friends of Daniel? When Nebuchadnezzar had built the big statue and ordered everybody to worship, and they refused to worship, and Nebuchadnezzar was going to threaten them and throw them into the fiery furnace? Listen to what they said. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the images of gold that you have set up. Now that is some serious submission to the will of God. Amen? Our God is able and we pray he will rescue us, but even if he does not. Not. And it was with that same kind of faith and determination that the early church prayed not for God to spare them from persecution, but for God to use their trials for His glory and to point people to Jesus. So whatever God's reason for sparing Peter and not James, it is, one thing is clear, and that it is God's throne that's in control, not Herod's. Just as it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar's throne that was in control. Now let's look back at verse 5. Here we see in Acts 12, 5, the church's earnest prayer. This is the turning point of the story. There's a Puritan preacher named Thomas Watson who said, the angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. I like that. We must never forget that God's will is sovereign, but we must also never downplay the power of a praying church. And while we notice here in this verse the earnest prayers of the church and the verses that follow, I want us to notice Peter's firm faith. Because Peter does some interesting things in this story. First, we see Peter sleeping. In verse 6, it says, The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between the two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Now, as I read this, I think, you know, this is a pretty dire situation. 
I mean, sure, Peter's been in prison before, but not like this. Peter's alone. He doesn't have James or John there with him that night. He's by himself. He's physically chained to two guards. Herod has already killed James. And tomorrow, Peter's going to stand trial and likely be executed himself. This is as dire a situation as Peter's ever been in. So how is it, on the eve of his execution, Peter was sound asleep? That struck you odd? Would you be? In fact, Peter was so sound asleep, the angel had to kick him in the side to wake him up. (laughs) He had to strike him. Peter, I think, was so sound asleep because he rested in the peace that only prayer can bring. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, Paul writes these very well-known words, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It was that transcendent peace that was guarding Peter's heart and mind that helped him to sleep soundly that night. Haven't you ever experienced knowing that people were praying for you and just being awash in a peace that passes understanding? Have you ever been there? Peter knows the church is praying for him that night. I've had people tell me before, I could feel people praying for me today. I could feel it. I knew that the prayers of my church family were with me and it gave me strength and it gave me peace. That's why Peter could sleep. Peter also was resting in the Word of God. You see, when we spend time in God's Word, memorizing it and meditating on it, as Peter, I know, did, then when we need it most, prayer can bring Scripture to memory. I imagine Peter drawing strength from passages like Psalm 4-8 that says, I will lie down in peace for you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. Maybe that was on his mind as he fell asleep that night. Or Psalm 41.10 that says, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Peter rested in God's Word. And Peter rested in Jesus' promise. See, Jesus had given a particular promise to Peter in John chapter 21. He told Peter that he would not die until he was an old man. So Peter could sleep that night believing Jesus' promise that Herod wouldn't kill him tomorrow. Peter was sleeping. Peter also, we see, was obeying. Look at verse 8. So the angel kicks him, the chains fall off his hands, and the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. And Peter followed him out of prison. But he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. Now we've seen angels appear three times before in the book of Acts. And angels in the book of Acts, as as throughout much of Scripture, they either deliver God's people or they deliver God's message. They either deliver and rescue God's people or they literally deliver the message of God. In fact, the word angel actually means messenger. They were and are agents of God's sovereign will. They are obedient to God and they are proclaimers of His divine message. In this story, we see Peter actually do both. He too obeys the sovereign God 
and delivers God's message. Peter thought he was either dreaming, maybe seeing a vision. I mean, I'm sure, you, like me, you've experienced those things that you thought, man, this is just too good to be true. This can't be happening right now. I, I must got to pinch myself, right? This must be a vision. This must be a dream. And Peter wondered that. Is this really happening? But Peter still followed. He still obeyed. Now, I thought about how often we are guilty of praying and asking God to speak to us or to guide us in making a decision or, or to provide for a need or help us to solve a problem. And when he does, we either fail to see it or we hesitate to believe it's even actually happening. Right? You've been there? I know I have. When we pray and God answers, we need to do what Peter did. We need to get up and follow you see, God expects us to put prayers to our feet and do something. It's not just enough to say, well, I'll pray about it. It's not just enough to say, well, I'm praying about it. God wants us to do something with our prayers, put feet to our prayers. Are you praying maybe for God to help you find a place to serve in the church? Then do something. Try your hand at something. Or find some way to serve and say, well, I don't know if this is where God wants me to serve, but I'm going to try it out for a month or for this season, and see. Maybe you're praying for better finances. Who isn't, right? Well, do something. Make a budget. Start tithing. Cut back on some of your spending. Are you praying for God to help someone who's on your heart? Maybe there's a friend, a family member, someone in this church that you're burdened for and you're praying for. Do something. Serve that person. Go visit him or her. Send an encouraging card. Make a phone call. Take a meal to that person. It was only after Peter obeyed and followed that he could look back and see the miracle of answered prayer. And maybe we're missing out on seeing the miracle of answered prayer because we're not putting feet to our prayers. Maybe you're the answer that God has to that prayer. Or maybe you're part of that answer. And he's waiting for you to get up and obey. Notice also the angel tells Peter to put on his clothes and his sandals. Now, that's a rather mundane task for an angel to command, right? I mean, an angel shows up, the last thing you expect him to do is say, tie your shoes, right? Put on your jacket, it's kind of cold outside. I mean, that's just not what you expect to hear from an angel. But you know, God often joins the miraculous to the mundane. Too often we're only looking for God to do something supernatural and extraordinary while we neglect the natural and ordinary ways that God speaks and works around us every day. Remember how Jesus came into the world. Yes, he was born of a virgin and heralded by angels, but he was also born in a cattle stall and visited by lowly shepherds. Jesus may have fed over 5,000 people at once, but what did he do it with? A boy's lunch. And then he commanded the disciples to take up the leftovers. Let's not be wasteful. See, God, yes, he's miraculous. But he's also intensely practical, isn't he? The angel miraculously removed Peter's chains. But that angel wasn't about to put his shoes on him. Peter was going to have to put his own sandals on and dress his own self. See, God calls us to be faithful in doing the ordinary while we trust Him to do the extraordinary. Does that make sense? Are you all awake? Okay, just making sure. It's a little warm in here to me at least. I just don't want you, you know, falling asleep on me. 
You know, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, but he called on those standing nearby to roll the stone out of the way and take the burial cloths off of him. So God does the miraculous, but then he expects us to do the mundane. God does the extraordinary, but he expects us to do the ordinary. So what are you praying for these days? What might God expect you to do to put feet on your prayers for yourself, for your family, your friends and those around you? What might Jesus want to do through you to answer your prayers for your church, for our country, and for our world? How would God ask you to be a part of the ordinary and mundane solution to those needs while you trust Him to do the miraculous and the extraordinary? Peter obeyed. Then we see Peter knocking. Look in verse 12. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. So this is where the prayer meeting that was going on, where the church was earnestly praying for Peter. And Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. Now, now this, this story just amazes me. The angel has finished his mission. He's gone on, and the rest is up to Peter. And Peter knew that God had answered the earnest prayer of the church. So where's the best place for him to go? To that prayer meeting. He wants them to know right away how God had answered their prayers. And, and now remember with me, you've got you to remember, these people had been praying earnestly, constantly, probably all day and all night, and specifically for Peter to be released. Yet when the answer to their prayers is standing at the front door, they can't even let him in. I mean, God could get Peter out of prison, but Peter can't get himself into a prayer meeting. Now, to be fair, it could have been Herod's soldiers knocking on that door, right? I mean, in fact, it was pretty courageous of this servant girl, Rhoda, to even go and answer that knock. So imagine her joy and her surprise when she recognizes Peter's voice on the other side of that door. In fact, she was so overjoyed, she forgot to open the door and let him in. And she runs in there and tells everybody, It's Peter! He's at the door! It's almost comical. Peter's out there left knocking on the door. Hey, let me in. While the people who are praying for his release are inside debating what to do. God answered our prayer? Don't know how to handle that. What, why do we, should we open the door and let him in? I don't know. It's not comical because the longer he's out there knocking and yelling, the more dangerous it is for Peter, right? I mean, these guys are going to be looking for him. He's, he's, he's on the loose. He's a fugitive. So, so that's kind of the situation. And they answer her in verse 15, you're out of your mind. That was nice, wasn't it? Oh, you servant girl, you're out of your mind. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. Now let me just take a, a quick moment right there to say that this, there is very scant evidence in the Bible for this idea of a guardian angel, uh, like a personal guardian angel, like we each have an angel assigned to us. Okay, for some of us, I think God would have to really pick, I don't know, either the worst or the best of the angels to put with us, right? Because we'd keep them so busy all the time. But in, the, in first century Palestine, this was a popular Jewish notion, that everybody had a personal guardian angel, and they believed that when somebody died, their angel could appear to the, to the family and the friends and the loved ones. So that's kind of what's going on here. And this whole scene sort of reminds me what happens after Jesus rose from the dead. Remember? 
The apostles kind of told Mary Magdalene, you're out of your mind. When, they, when she said, I've seen Jesus, he's alive. And then when Jesus showed up, he had to convince them he wasn't a ghost. So it's, it's almost kind of the same thing happening right here. And both stories illustrate for us an important truth. And that's that bad theology plus unbelief leads to confusion and fear. And we saw that in Jesus' resurrection, and we see that here. And too sadly enough, we see that too much in our world today. Bad theology plus unbelief leads to fear and confusion. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people in this world that want to prey on our fear and confusion. Amen? So we need to have faith in God, no matter how bad the world may get. And we need to know God's Word. And we need to be in Bible study and fellowship together to make sure our theology is sound. It also illustrates the truth that God honors even the weakest of faith. Our prayer can be like the prayer of the father whose boy was tormented by demons and he called out for Jesus to heal him. And Jesus said, well, everything is possible to him who believes. And the man prayed out to Jesus, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Maybe that's your prayer. Maybe as you pray for needs in your life and in the lives of others, you think, Lord, I want to believe, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And thankfully, God understands our weakness and He graciously honors even the weakest of faith. But I have to wonder, how much more does God desire to do and give and show us if we would only open our eyes with a little bit more expectancy for Him to answer our prayers? Amen? And then in verse 16 and 17, But Peter kept on knocking, and they opened the door. They saw him. They were astonished. And Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, he said. And then he left for another place. So finally we see Peter declaring. Peter obeyed, and now he delivered God's message. Maybe Peter really was like an angel. He's obeying God. He's delivering God's message. He's giving testimony to the church. He's giving glory to God. He wants the word to spread that our God is a God who answers prayer. Our God is a God who sees our trials. Our God is a God who cares and is powerful and is victorious. That is the God that we serve. Whenever God answers prayer, it is always for His glory. And we should use every answered prayer, whether it's miraculous or mundane, to praise and glorify God and point people to Jesus Christ. And then Peter leaves for another place. And in the verse, next verse, it says there was no small commotion as to what had become of Peter. And that's, that's pretty apt because throughout history there's been no small commotion about what happened to Peter. Because after this story, he really kind of fades off the scene and, and gives room for Paul and his mission to the Gentiles. We see a mention of Peter briefly in Acts 15. Paul mentions him a few times. But beyond that, we really don't know what happened to Peter. Tradition holds that he was crucified upside down in Rome in A.D. 60. That's, that's not in the Bible, that's just tradition. But Peter was faithful. Peter obeyed God. Peter was instrumental to the birth and the growth of the early church. And the last thing I want us to look at very briefly is the last part of that verse in 1 Peter, and that's that God deals with our enemies, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. In verse 18, "...in the morning there was no small commotion among the soldiers as what had become of Peter." And after Herod had a thorough search made for him, he did not find him. He cross-examined the guards and he ordered that they be executed. So Herod kills the guards. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there a while. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. 
Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace. So they kind of had, they had an inside track on Herod. They had sort of a, some friends in high places, and these people were able to kind of pull some political strings. They asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne, delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a god, not of a man. So they're playing up to Herod's ego, right? They're wanting to get something from him. So they're, they're kind of just really going over the top. And of course, Herod loves every minute of it. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. So while all this is happening, remember, Paul and Barnabas are in Jerusalem delivering funds because they're, they're having some hard times there in Jerusalem. That was from last Sunday. You know, the, the point I want to make at this last bit is that rather than Herod killing Peter for glorifying Jesus, God killed Herod for glorifying himself. Herod was engaged in the worst kind of idolatry, the worship of self. And this last episode points out how the world seeks power, pleasure, and praise. And because God's kingdom is constantly colliding with the kingdom of this world, the church often is what suffers. And see, the early church didn't have political clout. They didn't have people on the inside they could pull strings with. They didn't have friends in high places. So they had to go to the highest place of all. They had to go before the throne room of God. And the early church relied on the power of prayer precisely because they placed their trust in God to supply their needs, in God to answer their questions, and in God to solve their problems. And in verse 24, we see the result of that kind of dependency on God, that kind of passion for prayer, the kind of power that we can expect. In the beginning of this chapter, it looked like the kingdom of Herod was in control and the church had seen its last day. But at the end of the chapter, it's Herod that's dead and the church that is alive and growing. God's kingdom always wins. Now, you may not have any literal enemies that you want God to deal with, but we all have an ultimate enemy, the devil. And the curse and the fallen nature of this world, including our own sinful nature, and yes, Satan himself, they are at war against us. And when we pray, make no mistake, we are entering into spiritual battle. But God is on our side. And he will ultimately deal with our enemies, no matter what form they may take. One missionary said it this way, Let us keep our chins up and our knees down. We are on the victory side. Amen? Is that great news? No matter what you're facing, you can keep your chin up if you keep your knees down because God's kingdom will always win and He will deal with our enemies. Now, we would be remiss this morning not to consider for a moment how we can best pray for our brothers and sisters who are right now in chains for the gospel. And Hebrews 13.3 is the best thing I can recommend Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. So how would you want somebody to pray for you if you were in that place? I think that we pray for God to give them grace to bear their suffering so they can give witness to Jesus Christ. I think we ask God's Spirit to comfort and encourage them and bring scriptures to their memory. I think that we can certainly pray for God to work in the hearts of those leaders in the world who are persecuting Christians, that God might perhaps change their hearts. And certainly we pray for God to protect them and to deliver them from evil.
So I hope that you will join me every day in praying for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world who are seriously putting their lives at risk every day simply claiming the name of Jesus. You know, this morning, maybe God has spoken to your heart, maybe through the baptism God has spoken to you, and you realize that you need to put your faith and trust in Jesus. You need Him to be your sovereign Lord. Maybe you just need to come forward and say, I've already done that, but I've never been baptized, and I want to be baptized. Maybe God has stirred in your heart for you and your family to unite with this church. And, and I will be standing here down front ready to receive you whatever your decision. But I want to make another invitation today. As we have focused on prayer, as we have heard God's Word about the power of a praying church, about having faith to pray, about trusting in the sovereign will of God, that God sees our trials and He hears our prayers, and ultimately He will deal with our enemies. And, and we're going to have several people standing down front here ready to receive you and pray with you. Maybe this morning there's a burden on your heart. It might be for you. It might be for someone else. It might be for this church or for this country or for, for the world. It may be for the hungry, for the sick. It may be for those being persecuted by ISIS. Whatever God has laid on your heart. If you just want to come, the altar is open. You can come and just bow at this altar and pray. But there will be people down front just standing there ready to pray with you. If you just want somebody to pray with you this morning, we're going to have a, a good old-fashioned prayer meeting as we have our invitation time. And you come. You can be as specific or as general as you want. And those people are just going to pray with you. So let's stand and let's sing about what a friend we have in Jesus. And I invite you to come and make a decision. I invite you to come and pray at the altar. I invite you to come and pray with one of the individuals standing here ready to pray with you as we sing. Mm -hmm.